Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 65, Intensive Sleep Retraining. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. What if you could jumpstart your sleep in just one intense weekend to fall asleep fast and get more sleep? In this week's episode, I discuss the relatively new intervention for insomnia known as intensive sleep retraining, what it is, how it's done, and whether it even works. Before we jump in with this week's content, I'd love to hear from you. At wellrestedmd.com, you'll find a new feature on the homepage and the contact page where you can leave me a voicemail, ask any burning questions you may have, or something you've been too embarrassed to ask, or even haven't gotten a straight answer on before. Check out wellrestedmd.com to post your questions in a voicemail and I'll be answering them in an upcoming episode. So thanks in advance. Now let's take a closer look at this concept of intensive sleep retraining. There are plenty of nonsense sales pitches from scam artists and hacks trying to convince you to blow your hard-earned money on quick-fix schemes and snake oil for your sleep. Some, like polyphasic sleep, confuse an historical account with legitimacy and efficacy. Others in the supplement space fall prey to the naturalistic fallacy lack any semblance of quality control, as we'll discuss further next week, and consistently fail to demonstrate any benefit. But there is one quick-fix scheme that may not be a scheme, after all. An intervention for insomnia known as Intensive Sleep Retraining, or ISR for short. What is Intensive Sleep Retraining? Well, as the name suggests, it's not exactly a cakewalk. It's actually pretty intense. The idea is really twofold. First, If you are extra tired, thanks to the protocol, you will fall asleep more readily than if you weren't tired enough. And the protocol is designed to make you tired. The second idea is that with insomnia, we often become disconnected from, or at least stop becoming responsive to, normal sleep cues. Cues both in our external environment, like the setting sun and growing darkness, lower noise levels and others around us falling asleep, etc., as well as less responsive to internal cues, like sleepiness and fatigue. Thus, we have learned wakefulness, or the absence of learned sleepfulness, because of this mismatch. This may also be one of the reasons behind so-called paradoxical insomnia, otherwise known as sleep-state misperception. In sleep-state misperception, perhaps because of this decreased ability to read our internal cues, we become less able to distinguish when we've actually been sleeping from when we are actually awake. We typically see this playing out as someone who undergoes a sleep study that quantifies with high precision sleep versus wake states. And yet, the individual swears up and down they hardly slept a wink, despite all the evidence to the contrary. 
It's as if we've learned through lots of bad sleep experiences to dissociate from the feelings and experience of sleep, and therefore fail to recognize them when they are present and misperceive the state of sleep. It's paradoxical insomnia because the individuals believe they are not sleeping because they have become disconnected from all the internal cues that are telling them that they are sleeping. So it is believed that with intensive sleep retraining, we better learn or relearn the pairing of the perception of falling asleep with actually falling asleep. Repair this direct first-hand knowledge of the act of falling asleep with direct and immediate feedback and confirmation of falling asleep. Reunite the experience of the sensations with the subjective understanding of what just took place, reinforced by an outside, unbiased observer. We'll go over the protocols in just a moment, but these two feats of feeling sleepy and repeatedly pairing sleeping cues with the act of falling asleep, this is accomplished by essentially making the individual fall asleep over and over again, but never letting them sleep longer than just a few minutes at a time. It sounds a bit like torture to me, but as we'll see in just a moment, it does seem to work for some people. But similar to last week, there are some contraindications. Basically, if someone has a condition that makes them susceptible to sleep loss, the two classic examples would be a history of seizures or of bipolar disorder, they really should stay away from intensive sleep retraining, as the risk for an adverse outcome is higher than in others without those conditions. So what does the data actually show? Unfortunately, not a whole lot. And that's primarily because there haven't been a lot of studies on it, and therefore just not a lot of data to tease apart. The first pilot study was reported at a conference in 2002. It involved just 10 subjects with insomnia and no control group or comparison. There was no objective measures for outcome, but rather subjective sleep times. The researchers found that 8 weeks after intensive sleep retraining, subjects reported being able to fall asleep after 45 minutes on average. That doesn't sound great, but that's compared to reportedly 75 minutes to fall asleep prior to the intervention. Subjects also reported being able to increase their total sleep time to 372 minutes 8 weeks after the intervention, up from a baseline of 312 minutes per night. That accompanied an improvement in sleep efficiency from 63% up to 78%. So they fall asleep faster, sleep more, and have better sleep efficiency but there was no comparison group or sham intervention to account for any placebo effect. And a sleep efficiency of 78% is still poor. Normal efficiency is around 90%, meaning that 90% of the time an individual is in the bed, she is actually sleeping. And still taking 45 minutes to fall asleep doesn't sound like a win to me. Similar to the laughable changes in sleep latency seen with the sedative hypnotics and other prescription drugs that we discussed in episode 25. The next pilot study published in 2007 enrolled 17 subjects with chronic insomnia. There again was no comparison group or control intervention, but with this study there was objective measures of sleep before and after the intervention, using actigraphy, which we discussed in episode 38. Six weeks after intensive sleep retraining, the subjects reported being able to fall asleep after 47 minutes on average, compared to 70 minutes at baseline. Objectively, using data from their actigraphs, the sleep latency improved from just under 48 minutes at baseline to 38 minutes after ISR. Subjects believe their total sleep time increased by 43 minutes compared to pre-treatment, but actigraphy demonstrated a more modest improvement of just 5.7 minutes more of total sleep time after treatment. Overall sleep efficiency did improve from just under 70% up to 74.5% after the intervention. Similar subjective changes to the first study with objective results demonstrating positive but less exciting improvements. But still, 
Subjects were left with prolonged time to fall asleep and achieving abnormally low sleep efficiency after the intervention. The results were promising enough that the Australian government provided some funding and the first multi-arm randomized control trial was conducted, published in 2012. In this study, 79 subjects with chronic insomnia were randomized to either intensive sleeper training alone or a second group of stimulus control, something discussed in episode 44 on CBTI, a third group of ISR immediately followed by stimulus control for combination therapy, or a fourth group as the control, who were just provided sleep hygiene education alone. In this trial, 19 individuals had ISR alone, and another 20 received ISR plus stimulus control as the intervention. Immediately following treatment, the sleep hygiene group alone were able to fall asleep over 4 minutes faster, the stimulus control group were falling asleep over 6 minutes faster, and the ISR group fell asleep over 9 minutes faster, and the ISR plus stimulus control groups were also falling asleep nearly 9 minutes faster. Sleep efficiency dropped slightly in the control group, and increased by only 1-2% in each of the three treatment groups. Sleep quality measured by questionnaire improved in all three treatment groups, but to a greater extent in the group with the combination of ISR plus stimulus control. Six months after treatment, dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep, the subject of episode 57, had improved in all treatment groups, with the greatest improvement in the ISR plus stimulus control group. Even measures of self-efficacy improved after treatment, with the highest improvement in the stimulus control group and the ISR plus stimulus control groups. They also calculated the responder rate. Responders they classified as the individuals who improved the time it takes to fall asleep to under 30 minutes, or at least by 50% compared to baseline and improve sleep efficiency to at least 85%. So responders have sleep latencies under 30 minutes and spend 85% of the time in bed actually sleeping. Only 6 of the initial 20 subjects randomized to stimulus control were considered responders. Only 7 of the initial 19 assigned to ISR were responders. But among the 20 randomized to ISR plus stimulus control, 11 were considered responders. So less than half, really closer to a third, but 46% of those who showed up 2 months after treatment, actually responded to ISR, with the average subject still experiencing long times to fall asleep and low sleep efficiencies. Furthermore, that's only 39 humans who have ever been randomized in a study looking at intensive sleep retraining, and only another 27 who've undergone the protocols. 66 humans out of the billions suffering sleep trouble. It's hard to extrapolate. However, it does seem promising. And for a minority of individuals, it may be a good option. And when combined with other interventions, like with stimulus control in this trial, it appears even more likely to benefit. So what is the protocol that these individuals are subjected to as part of intensive sleep retraining? To me, it sounds like something you might have seen Jack Bauer inflict on a suspect in an episode of 24, and many subjects have expressed hesitation leading up to the intervention. But none of the 66 subjects undergone intensive sleep retraining have ever withdrawn from the intervention so perhaps the dread is worse than the experience itself. The intervention is typically done over a weekend, if three nights is your idea of a quick fix. The first night is intended to help build up your sleep drive, that process S. Subjects are asked to limit their time in bed to just five hours. I've also seen time in bed limited to just two hours less than usual, and I've also seen subjects asked to stay awake the entire first night with zero sleep. Night two is where the real fun begins which lasts a full day or even a bit longer. Subjects undergo basic polysomnography, the full-blown sleep study discussed back in episode 38, or at least they have sensors on the scalp or on the eyes and on the chin to stage wake and sleep. These subjects then undergo a series of 48 to 50 trials, one trial every 30 minutes over the following 24 to 25 hours. 
The trial involves the subject getting into bed, lights out, with the instructions to get comfortable, be still, just let yourself fall asleep. The subject is only allowed 20 to 25 minutes in the bed total for each trial. If they don't ever fall asleep, tough luck, because then they just need to spend the next 5 to 10 minutes awake and out of bed until the next trial begins, doing some quiet wakeful activity, but prevented from snoozing. If they ever do fall asleep, the sleep technician monitoring the sleep study data only lets them sleep for 2 to 3 minutes max, and then wakes them up. That's it. Just 3 minutes allowed to sleep, and then someone comes in and wakes them up. The participant is then asked whether they fell asleep or not, and then given feedback about what the sleep study showed to help train them to understand their sleep better, repairing those internal cues of sleep with the act of sleeping itself. This helps improve the individual's discrimination between their own states of wake and sleep. If they didn't think they fell asleep, but they did, that's some important corrective information to know. If they thought they did fall asleep, but they didn't, that's also important corrective information to know. And if the subject correctly assessed that they were fully awake or fully asleep, that's also very helpful feedback. After they are awakened, they have to stay awake outside the bed to the next trial begins at the next 30-minute block. They do this over and over again. Get into bed, turn off the lights, just get 20-25 minutes of opportunity to sleep, and shortly after they do fall asleep, someone wakes them up and they do the whole thing all over again. Every 30 minutes, for 48 to 50 trials in a row, for the next 24 to 25 hours straight. That's it. Then after the last trial, bringing us to night three, since the trials last all throughout night two, and all throughout the morning and afternoon and evening, which ends right around the individual's usual bedtime or shortly thereafter, so then on night three, they are allowed a full eight hours to rest in bed. This recovery sleep on the Sunday night of the weekend of intensive sleep retraining allows them the opportunity to get enough rest whether they aren't a total train wreck for what's to come on Monday morning as they head back to their usual lives. Some protocols might even skip the third night, but require another party a friend or family member, to drive the subject home, since after that kind of sleep deprivation, their crash risk is considerably higher, as we discussed in episode 48. So a night of restricted time in bed or even full sleep deprivation on Friday, a regular day on Saturday with no napping allowed, and then starting Saturday night, a tease of sleep for no more than three minutes at a time during each of the next 50 blocks of 30 minutes all Saturday night, all Sunday during the day until some recovery sleep on Sunday night. Generally, the first several trials are harder, or at least it takes longer to fall asleep. Then most of the trials across the late night hours Saturday and early morning hours on Sunday, the time it takes to fall asleep is short. Then during the day on Sunday, when asked to fall asleep at a weird hour, it starts to take a little longer to fall asleep. But after two nights in a row of little to no sleep, subjects are still typically falling asleep in each of the daytime trials on Sunday, after about 10 to 15 minutes compared to maybe 3 to 7 minutes during the overnight trials. So there are a few studies involving just a few dozen individuals with modest results on average, and good results for a select few. So what else is there? Well, this is not something that we offer in my sleep lab. First of all, because it would be labor-intensive, incredibly expensive, and not covered by insurance. Now, someone may be desperate enough in their suffering of insomnia that they're willing to pay thousands of dollars for a weekend of wake-up torture, but given the data on efficacy so far, it has not been worth the hassle for us to arrange it in my lab. Thanks to the promise shown by these early results, there are a couple more accessible ways to try to achieve something similar, one in the form of a physical device and one in the form of a smartphone app with no other physical accessories needed, that both can be used in your own home and not the artificial home-ish environment of a sleep lab. The smartphone app is called Sleep on Q from Microsleep Solutions. There is a single paper just accepted for publication but not yet out in a journal supporting its use. 
the researchers enrolled healthy individuals between 18 and 69 years old with no other form of sleep treatment, no other symptoms of any medical or psychiatric condition or sleep problem other than insomnia, no use of sleeping pills or any other drug that could affect sleep. They had to consume less than 250 milligrams of coffee a day and less than 10 servings of alcohol per week, with no recent travel across time zones and no shift work. Ultimately, because of these exclusions, only 12 individuals were included in the study. The main outcome was reducing either time to fall asleep or wake after sleep onset by at least 30 minutes measured subjectively by a sleep diary. They did use actigraphy, but just on night one of the protocol to ensure that the subject stuck to the five hours or less of sleep. The way the app works is basically by playing a barely audible tone about every 30 seconds or so, and when the tone plays, the subject needs to gently shake or move the phone. If the subject doesn't respond to two tones in a row, after about a minute, the app determines that the individual is asleep, and then intensively vibrates to wake up the subject. If the subject responds to all the tone cues, meaning that they didn't fall asleep within this 30-minute or so trial, they are asked to get up and go do some wakeful activity for the next five minutes. For the study, they did 40 of these trials conducted across just 12 hours, rather than the 25 and sometimes 24-hour protocols used elsewhere. Participants completed an average of 36 of the trials, with 8 of the 12 people completing all 40. Subjective time to fall asleep fell from 107 minutes at baseline down to 80 minutes seven weeks later. Wake after sleep onset fell from 101 minutes at baseline down to 66 minutes at follow-up seven weeks later. Total sleep time improved from 284 minutes at baseline up to 303 minutes a night seven weeks later. This led to an improvement in sleep efficiency from 51% at baseline all the way up to 56% at follow-up. Despite these modest changes in subjective sleep timing, the insomnia severity, daytime function, and dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep, they all improved, though still to a modest but statistically significant degree. The second method for home-based intensive sleep retraining is something called the FIM ring, T-H-I-M. Currently, there is no published data on any outcomes from using the FIM as an intervention. There is a study published last May in 2021 evaluating the accuracy of the device to measure sleep onset latency. Can the device even determine with decent accuracy whether you've fallen asleep or not? In the first set of subjects, the ring was waking people up before they had actually fallen asleep nearly a quarter of the time. They then rightly adjusted the algorithm to be less aggressive at overcalling sleep that wasn't really there. So in the second set of subjects, that rate of false positive sleep, where the ring woke up the subject when it thought it was asleep when there really wasn't any, that rate dropped down to just over 10%. Overall, there was a lot of agreement between a tried-and-true sleep study and the ring, with moderate correlations between them, but not high. This study included only 12 individuals, again, all healthy, with 7 good sleepers and 5 with sub-threshold insomnia, so neither good nor bad sleepers. Whether the thim ring is accurate or not in an insomnia patient is under investigation, and whether it actually works to improve anyone's sleep at all has not been looked at as far as I could find. So to summarize, is there a surefire, quick-fix way to eliminate insomnia? The answer is still a hard no, but there are some promising, though preliminary, results. Intensive sleep retraining may be beneficial for a minority of individuals. By forcing sleep deprivation and then repeatedly teasing you with sleep, ISR aims to re-establish the connection between the experience of falling asleep with the reinforced awareness of falling asleep. When repeated dozens of times across a weekend, Intensive sleep retraining does boast some results. With only 66 patients studied in a standardized protocol, only 39 of them in a randomized fashion, it's hard to extrapolate. However, ISR does seem to consistently improve the time it takes to fall asleep, improve the total amount of sleep achieved, 
improve sleep efficiency and improve insomnia symptoms and daytime function, and no one can argue against that. But on average, in this small number of subjects tested to date, the degree of suffering still present after the intervention is hard to ignore. Even after treatment, still taking 40 to 80 minutes to fall asleep on average doesn't sound like success to me, with an average of clinically significant moderate insomnia severity. In sleep efficiencies in the 50s to 70s, it is a far cry from a home run. However, one study did report a responder rate where individuals were essentially cured of insomnia, and a cure rate of 36% is nothing to balk at, especially when combined with other well-established interventions for insomnia, that cure rate bumps up to 55%. And now with at least two home-based versions of intensive sleep retraining, there are accessible options for many more. But whether these versions done in the convenience of one's home actually work is another thing. And with the limited data so far, it appears that this promising intervention still has a lot to prove. If you haven't already, go check out wellrestedmd.com slash day, where you can get a special download, a totally free cheat sheet. In this Day of the Life of the Well-Rested download, you'll find examples and timing of several morning and evening routines, the evidence-based best practices for wakeful days and restful nights. So head over to wellrestedmd.com slash day to get these best practices in action. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes, leave a review, and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information, including the option to sign up for email updates. And don't forget to drop me a voicemail with your questions about sleep. Thanks for listening.